So we're in a brand new series. I like to kind of go between a couple of different kinds of series. One is a series like Overcomer or a, a topical series like that because I think there's so many powerful things that God wants to speak to us. Um, but I also like to go through the books of the Bible because I think that, first of all, I'm a huge fan of this book called The Bible. Uh, I think there's so much in there. I think in general, um, we are becoming as a nation more and more biblically illiterate. Not at heart church though, but in general, um, it can be a, a, a daunting task to get into the Word. And so uh, I like to go through books of the Bible as well. And so um, we are starting a series through the book of Mark. Mark is a fantastic book. You're going to hear a little bit of the background on Mark. Um, and so today is going to be sort of a two-part sermon, um, part teaching on Mark and what the gospel Mark is to set us up for the next six or seven weeks. Uh, and then the second part of my sermon is going to be um, what I feel like is the word for us today um, out of the first chapter in Mark. So we good for that? Yeah, yeah it's going to be awesome. Okay, so um, who is Mark? Well, let's start with the fact that his name is John Mark. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, the book of Mark is um, one of the what's called the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, John is often included in that run-on sentence of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but John is not a Synoptic Gospel, which simply means that that book was not designed by the Holy Spirit, inspired through the, the pen of an author to write the uh, chronological things that Jesus did in his life. Um, John was, uh, the, the purpose of John was a little bit different than that, nevertheless, the life of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar, and so if you go through those books, you'll see a lot of the same stories, and it'll kind of start generally in the same place and end generally in the same place, and then everything in between. But Mark is unique. Uh, Mark was the very first gospel that was written, they believe. Uh, the things that I'm going to tell you about Mark um, are where the vast majority of commentaries and um, scholars and people smarter than me kind of land in Mark, the author of Mark, and kind of all those things. So um, Mark, they believe, was the very first one that was written around 60 AD, which is about 40 years after, uh, 30 years after Christ. Um, and it was written by the name, a guy that, by the name of John Mark. And why is that important? Well, I think it's just kind of cool to, to know who this person is. Mark was not a disciple. And so when you think about the disciples, the 12 disciples, you naturally think, okay, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If I were to ask you or ask the average person, who are the disciples? You'd probably start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Mark wasn't actually one of the 12 disciples. And so who was this person? Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 says um, that John Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas. So Barnabas was a traveling partner of Paul that we see all throughout the New Testament uh, church in Acts. So Paul and Barnabas would travel a lot and do a lot of amazing things. So uh, John Mark was uh, Barnabas's cousin. John Mark grew up in Cana which is where Jesus turned the water into wine. Uh, if you go to Israel, then oftentimes we'll stop in Cana and see the church where Jesus was at to perform that miracle. Um, and so some believe that he would have been one of the servants at the wedding, um, helping out with the water turning into wine miracle. John Mark, this is John Mark. John Mark would have been uh, kind of a youngster, maybe in elementary school during that miracle. He was younger than the disciples, uh, but he grew up in Cana. His parents were very wealthy. 
Um, he, didn't, he wasn't born in Cana, but he moved there very young. He grew up in Cana, but they also had a house in Jerusalem. This is where the plot thickens. You guys are going to be so amazed by this, and I think it's going to really frame um, this book because it's easy to just open up the Bible and just assume like, oh, this is, you know, this is the Bible. It's inspired of the Word of God, but like, who are these people and what is their perspective? Because it brings so much color to the Word of God. Um, and so that's kind of my hope today. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, there's a cool story of the early church gathered in Jerusalem to pray for Peter to be released from prison. So now this is the cool, this is a cool passage. I'm going to read it. And, and, and again, remember that John Mark, his parents were very wealthy. And back then, to have two houses, I mean, now to have two homes is, is, is pretty amazing. Back then, it would be very wealthy, especially to own in Jerusalem. So they had a house where he grew up in Canaan, but they also had this house in Jerusalem. And we see that. In Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were, had gathered and were praying. So we're not going to get into this story, but it is a really cool story where Peter was arrested for preaching the gospel. And so the disciples had gathered in John Mark's mom's house, or John Mark's house as a child, and they had gathered there and circled up the believers and started praying and contending that the Lord would set Peter free. And, in, and inevitably, that's what happened. There was a miracle. Peter was set free, and he came wandering back to the house where the disciples were. They didn't actually believe it was him, and they thought it was a ghost. But um, that's John Mark's house. What's cool about that is that most scholars believe that that house where Peter went after he was released, where they were all gathered to pray, was actually also called the upper room, which if you go to Israel, just shameless plug today for Israel, if you go to Israel for us, which we're going in June of 2025, um, then we'll visit the upper room. Now, so there's some places in Israel that you'll visit, and they say, this is the place, but then they're like, but we don't actually know if this is for sure the place, but it's somewhere around here. Well, that's one of those, so it's not necessarily the actual house, but it's the same location. So when you read the book of Mark, he actually grew up in the upper room. And the upper room was the place where the disciples gathered before Jesus was crucified, and they had the Last Supper. This is where, if you read the book of John, and you're going to read uh, chapters 14 through 17, this is where Jesus was gathered with them, instructing them, and having the Last Supper. And then it's also the place where, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said, I'm going to come back. But before I do, you guys need some power. So I want you to go into Jerusalem. And find that little old house that you were hanging out. Remember that house that you guys used to hang out in? Yeah, go, go up there and hang out until the Holy Spirit comes. And this is that, that house. Um, another kind of cool, fun fact is um, Mark chapter 14 and verse 51. It says, this is a very strange verse that is not found in any of the other Gospels, which is why most theologians believe that this is Mark kind of putting his little spin on, on one of the things that took place. It says, A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him. He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And that's pretty much all it says about this young man. And why did this, they add this to the story? There's no, no other account of this person, no of the other Gospels add this. And so most theologians believe that this was John Mark. Because, see, John Mark would have been young, 
and he was living at the upper room where they were right before this happened. Remember when they were having the Last Supper? And then they, Jesus said, all right, it's time to go to the Garden of Gethsemane because I need to pray, and that's ultimately where they came to arrest him. And so a lot of the theologians believe that John Mark was at the house while they were doing the Last Supper, probably upstairs, you know, what's going on down there? Probably had like a robe or something on because he was in bed before that because he's young and his mom put him to bed. And then when they left, he followed. And then when Jesus was arrested, then they grabbed him and he ran home, scared and naked. <laughs> Again, how does that affect us today? Well, I just think that it, it, it colors and flavors as we open up the scripture and we read through the book of Mark, this is a person that God used in a powerful way and the way that God orchestrates all of these things when he was here and then when he left us with power. Um, another interesting thing about um, this book and who John Mark is, is he's a Peter's disciple. It says in 1 Peter 5.13, um, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Um, Mark. John Mark partnered up with Peter after he traveled with Barnabas and, and Paul, and they had kind of a falling out, and then they hooked up with Peter, and um, John Mark and Peter became very close friends. Peter discipled John Mark, because again, like I said, he was a lot younger, and then he traveled everywhere with Peter, mainly in Rome, and heard most of the sermons that Peter preached over the next 10 years. And this is what um, Papias of Heropolis said that uh, is one of the most well-known theologians and uh, somebody that was, you know, alive just 20 years after the crucifixion um, that wrote so much of what we know about the Bible. He says this, The gospel according to Mark had this occasion. As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that John Mark, who had followed him for a long time and remembered his sayings, should write them down. And having composed the gospel, he gave it to those who had requested it. And so when you look at the book of Mark, here's what you got. You got Peter's sermons inspired by the Holy Spirit, who, who was also an eyewitness to all of the things in the gospel that you're here, because Peter was there from the beginning. And then you have God inspiring John Mark, who was there for these sermons, to actually write them down and then ha add, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his take on it. And so when you read the book of Mark, you're really also reading the book of Peter. And so it's a beautiful combination of what God did in those days, recorded and inspired by the Holy Spirit. In 1949 AD, just 20 years after the resurrection, John Mark founded the first church of Alexandria, a Roman city. And he's largely considered the founder of Christianity in Africa. And if you don't know where Alexandria is, because I didn't, here's a map. So, very top right-hand corner of Africa is Alexandria, and that was one of the big Roman cities at the time. And then just right across the little uh, bay there is, um, is Israel, 
So um, kind of the middle right side of that square is Israel. So you see how close it was, just a boat ride away. And that's where uh, they believed that John Mark was born uh, before he moved to Cana. And he went back there and planted the very first church uh, in Alexandria. And then in 1968, just 20 years later, John Mark was martyred. When Roman pagan leaders placed a rope around his neck and dragged him through the streets of Alexandria until he was dead. But not before the Lord used him to write the book of Mark. What I love about this story and what I love about John Mark is that uh, he was a wealthy young man. He grew up in privilege. He grew up not only having some inside scoop on Jesus and he was around it a bit, but he had every opportunity to not go that way. He wasn't a fisherman. He wasn't a nobody. Um, His parents were very wealthy, and therefore he was very wealthy, and yet God transformed his life in such a powerful way that he chose to forsake all of those things um, and go ultimately be a missionary and an evangelist um, and ultimately ended up dying for his faith. Um, And so he's somebody that not only God used to translate what Peter said, but also his life speaks in such a profound way. Exciting? So we're going to take that background for the next number of weeks, and we're going to go, all right, let's dig in. And I encourage you to dig into this book a little bit. It's uh, fantastic. It's fast-paced. If you look at the book of Luke, Luke was a physician, so it's very detailed. And so you're going to have a lot of details in the book of Luke, and therefore it's a lot longer, and there's a lot more chapters. If you look at the book of Matthew, Matthew was written to the Jewish audience, and so therefore Matthew is going to include a lot more prophecy, things that are very relevant to the Jewish community. The book of Mark was written to Rome and the city of Alexandria, uh, Gentiles, people who don't really know a lot about prophecy and frankly don't really care. They just want to know who is Jesus and how is it relevant to my life. And so because of that, not only is there not as many prophecies laid out, but it's, there's not as much about what Jesus said as much as what he did. It's a book of action. And so when you think about that, think about Peter. Peter is like, all right, let's go. Let's go time. Let's do this. And so a lot of the times you'll see a story and it'll be outlined in Luke and it's like a whole page or two pages and Peter and through John Mark, uh, it'll be like a couple of sentences. And so it's a very fast-paced book, but we have so much to learn from it. So I want to start in Mark chapter 1. In verse 9, and I really want to outline kind of where I feel like God's going to take us today just in the next 20 minutes. Mark chapter 9, verse, chapter 1, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came to Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son in whom I love And with you, I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. I want to read one more passage of Scripture before we dive in here. Psalm chapter 37, verse 3 through 5. It's a familiar passage, but it's relevant today more than ever. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land And feed on his faithfulness. 
Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you want to speak to us through this ancient and yet powerful text. Jesus, I thank you that it's still today living and active has the ability to transform our lives. And so I pray that just as you intended it, when you inspired Bible to be written, that it would land in those places in our hearts that would set us free and make us alive. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message today is Feeding on His Faithfulness. Feeding on His Faithfulness. Um, I don't know if you have fears in your life, but I've struggled with a major fear in my life. And um, I've, I've considered going to therapy over it because it really dominates uh, most of my thinking uh, most days uh, because I really, really can't stand spiders. I mean, I'd, I'd like to say that it was no big deal. I'd like to say that uh, it was a small thing. But um, I watched Arachnophobia when I was uh, a youngster, and it was a game changer. I- I'm just going to say that. It, it was a game changer. Um, there's not a time when I um, go to the bathroom that uh, I don't first investigate uh, thoroughly around the toilet. There is not a moment that I take a shower that I don't uh, inspect every inch of that shower curtain. And if you've seen the movie, then you know what I'm talking about. It's... It's all-consuming. Well, I was at a local sandwich place uh, in Olympia. This was a famous sub-sandwich place. And I went there a lot. I went there for lunch. It's a relatively healthy meal. And it, I think it was called Maconi's. Maconi's Sandwiches. And it was just beautiful. And I went there a lot. And when they served this beautiful sub-sandwich, they did so in a basket, and they put your sandwich in, they would kind of lay down the both sides like that. Instead of folding it over, they would lay it down, and so you could see all the wonderful things in there, and that's how they gave it to you. And then you'd take it to your seat, and you would fold it, and you would start eating. Well, one day that I will never forget, I had my beautiful sandwich, and I was sitting down ready to eat, and I prayed. I was in a meeting, and we prayed over the meal, and then I looked down, and as soon as I looked down, right before I grabbed it, there was, you guessed it, a spider. And it wasn't just any spider. It was a spider from the movie. And I'm pretty sure I saw the spider look at me and wink before it crawled out. And it's just like, I don't think I've ever had a sub sandwich since. If you've gone to lunch with me, I mean, raise your hand if we've ever done a sub sandwich for lunch. It's just not going to happen, folks. I mean, I am mortified. I fully, I killed that. I killed the sandwich. I burned the place down. I mean, I think it's safe to say we don't always know what's in our food. But if I can just draw a more powerful conclusion, I think that we don't always know what is in our spiritual food. What we are eating that feeds our spirit, that feeds our soul, 
that makes us alive on the inside, the things that we consume all day long. And I guess my question is, what are you feeding on? What's in the food you are eating? And I want to really quickly draw a a notice to um, in this passage that we read. Not only did we hear the voice of the Father speak, but then the Bible says that the, the, the Jesus was led into the whole, into the wilderness, and he was tempted by the devil. And um, I want to draw a, an interesting um, observation with the words that Jesus uses for Satan. Now, because I mentioned Mark is quick and short. Uh, if you look in your Bible and you read this account in Mark, it's very short, like two sentences what we just read. But if you look in Luke and Matthew, it's a very extensive story because what happened in the um, wilderness was really profound and it documents what, what happened. And so Mark highlights the high level of what was going on, but then Luke and Matthew really articulate what went on in the desert. And so as we look at Mark chapter one, um, there's a word called, uh, Satanus, and that's the adversary. And that's a word that's used a lot for Satan because he is the adversary. He is our enemy. He is against us as the spirit of this world. But in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, there's a different word that Jesus uses to articulate this adversary and what he was actually accomplishing or trying to accomplish in the desert. And it's diabolos. Now, I don't know if that's how you say that word, but you don't know either, so we're going to go with it. (laughs) Diabolos. Now, um, when you think about the, the accuser or the slanderer, we often think about he's a liar, he's the father of lies, and we often think about how he accuses the brethren. That's what the Bible says, he accuses the brethren. He accuses you and me. He's constantly accusing you making you feel shame, making you feel less than, unworthy. And those are all things that are very relevant and true. But as we look at this, I want to show you how the enemy works also in a different yet so profound way that we often miss. And yet it's outlined in this entire story. Um, And it's really outlining that word diabolos. And I'll show you the next slide. Slanderer, this is what it means. A slanderer who or false accuser unjustly criticizing to hurt or sever a relationship. And when I saw that, I was like, what? This is not the accuser that I'm thinking of because when he's accusing me, he's not trying to sever a relationship. He's trying to kill me, right? He's trying to kill me on the inside. He's accusing me. But this this whole deal here, he's slandering for a purpose. And the purpose is to hurt or sever a relationship. And I thought to myself, what relationship is he trying to sever? And then it was obvious when I looked at this passage. Oh my gosh, he's slandering the Father. And this is really my first and last point today. This is the number one goal and strategy of the enemy in your life. To slander the character of God. To slander the character of God. And it's easy as as westernized Christians 
we see Christianity through the lens of us. We just do. And so we think about life and we think about the strategy of the enemy and we think about all these things through the lens of how does it affect me. And so when we hear slander, we automatically think, well, the enemy is coming after me and my identity. And while that's true, he has a bigger thing going on. And it's to slander the character of God. And I'm going to show you how that's an absolute game changer in your life and in my life. Um, the temptation isn't about breaking the fast. That's what I wrote. Um, so Jesus here, he's, um, he's going out in the desert and he's fasting and he's not eating and, and the enemy comes to him, the slanderer. And he says, why don't you turn this, why don't you turn this rock into bread if you're really the son of God? And we often think that the temptation was to get Jesus to break his fast and to, you know, to go out on his own and do his own thing. And really the temptation, this is what it says in Luke chapter 4, verse 3. If you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. The temptation isn't about what he's going to eat. It's about who he's going to trust. The temptation isn't about what Jesus is going to eat. It's about who he's going to trust. So the enemy's coming to him and he's saying, listen, I know God sent you on this assignment. And I know the Holy Spirit led you into the desert, but I think, Jesus, it's time to, for you to take matters into your own hands. I think it's time for you to do something. If you're really who you say you are, you need to start making some stuff happen here. And we see it because there's the parallel in the garden. And it's interesting because Jesus was tempted by the, the enemy in the desert. Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil in the garden. And they were tempted the very same way, the very first temptation. Check this out. We see the slanderer in the garden doing the same thing. Watch what the snake says to Eve. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees? And then in verse 4 and 5 it says, you won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows. That's very interesting. God knows. God knows your eyes will be opened. What, what, is, what is the enemy attacking right there? The character of God. God knows that your eyes are going to be opened. God's holding you back. He doesn't actually know the best for you. In fact, he doesn't even want the best for you. Look, God knows, and he's holding you back. That slanderer is coming against the character and nature of God to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Because it sounds like he's trying to hold you back. And can I tell you why? Did you know that the enemy's number one tactic is not to take you out? That's a byproduct, for sure. The enemy comes to kill, still, and destroy, for sure. But can I tell you his number one goal? To hurt the Father. He hates God. God kicked him out of heaven. He put, put him down here. He put him under his feet. He defeated him. He absolutely hates God. So do you know why he hates you? Because it's his only way to get to God. His only way to hurt God is to hurt you. And you know one of the best ways to get to a father is to convince his kids 
that his kids can't trust his father. How many parents in the room would say, if my kids came to me all of a sudden and I tried to do something beautiful for them and I was going bat for them and all of a sudden they turned their back on me and they said, we don't even trust you, Dad. In fact, we think you're doing something else here. I don't know if I can even trust you anymore. No, I'm going to do my own thing because I don't trust you. As a father, as a mother, what would that do to you? Oh my gosh, some of us have experienced that. It's heartbreaking. And so here's the enemy, slandering the character of God, trying to get you and me to believe something different about God than who he is. So I ask you again, what are you feeding on? So here comes the snake doing the same thing to Jesus. And Jesus is like, not today. I'm the new Adam. I've come to redeem all things. So Matthew chapter 4 says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word, by the mouth of God. Come on, I don't eat from a tree. I eat from every word from my Father. I know who he is. I know how he feels about me. And so I don't play that game. I don't feed on that garbage. I feed on the faithfulness of God. And we see that, and we see Jesus demonstrating that so quickly and so easily. But, it, but, but going back to right, what happened right before he went into the desert, remember what God, what God said to his son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the very first time in Jesus' life that we've heard him say that. It's the very first time, that, that moment. And it's interesting that God knew, I need to remind my son who he is because he's about to go face the slanderer who's going to tell him different things about who I am, different things about how I feel about him, different things about my plans for him. And now for Jesus, we get it. Jesus is part of the Trinity. He's been with the Father forever. He knows the Father better than anybody. But he's modeling something for you and me. So the question is, how many of us, this is our problem. We've been feeding on slander unknowingly. How many of us would say today, part of my problem is, I, I've been doubting the character of God. What does that look like? Well, I've been doubting his timing. I've been doubting his provision for me. I've been doubting his plan. I've been doubting his faithfulness. I've been doubting his love. And it's interesting because the enemy is very sly and he's very sleek and he doesn't come in and say, you know what, you should really doubt God. He doesn't say that. He comes in and he uses... He uses social buzzwords like, you should probably just go on a journey to see if really these, are, these things are right. And then he uses doubt. Well, you know, I mean, maybe all the things about the Bible aren't true, so you should just go on a little bit of a journey. I'll tell you, we are in an epidemic right now, especially with the young people, of doubt. Can I believe all of it? Was there a Noah's Ark? They haven't found it. Listen, I'm not saying that the Noah's Ark is the linchpin of the gospel, but I'm saying the enemy 
His goal is to get you and me to start feeding on slander against the nature and character of God. This is his goal. It's why, can I just go there and pass to you for a minute? It's why many of us don't tithe. Can I share something with you? Tithing is about trust. Giving is about generosity. Oh, pastors, go in there for a minute. Let me learn you for a minute. Tithing is about trust. Now listen, I've said this a hundred times. I said it at the new visitor meeting on Sunday. I have no idea who gives what. So I'm saying this with a pure heart uh, because our church is blessed. Y'all are generous. There's tons of, there's money in the coffers. We're doing ministry and moving forward and it's amazing. So I'm saying this for your benefit because this is the enemy's number one strategy to shortcut you and your ability to walk in the the Lord's goodness by slandering the character of God and convincing you you can't trust him. Why don't we tithe? Well, why is tithe about trust? Well, because it's the first and the best. So God says to the children of Israel when they cross over, I want you to give all the gold and all the silver of the first city, Jericho. And I want you to give it to me, and I don't want you to take any of it. The first city. Well, we know there's ten cities that they were going to conquer. And he says, the first city, Jericho, it's all mine. And they're like, Lord, there's tons of gold here. We could really use it. We're brand new into into this whole deal. We could use some resources. And God says, I get that. But if you take it now, then it will be your trust. You will put your trust in that. But I don't want you to do that. I want you to put your trust in me. So I say, give me the first, not knowing what's going to come next. Why? Because I can trust in the character of God. And I'm not going to feed on the enemy's garbage. I'm going to feed on his faithfulness. And then we give. Giving is being generous. I want you to give your time and your talents and your treasures. That's wonderful. And we should do all that. But tithing is about trust, make no mistake. And this is why the enemy, he doesn't attack generosity nearly as much as he attacks tithing because he doesn't want you to be a son and daughter in the kingdom that brings out your checkbook and takes down the very first line and goes, nope, the enemy is not gonna slander the character of God in my life today because I trust him. He is my provision. He is my provider. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I have more than enough. And so he gets the first because I trust him. Oh, okay. We'll get off my soapbox now. So, so I mentioned that this is an epidemic. Um, and I, I find it interesting that the devil offers both Adam and Jesus a substitute to feed on. I want you to eat this. Take, take a fruit. I mean, it could have been anything. But he should, take a fruit. And take, t- take this rock and make it into bread and eat this. I want you to feed on something. And I believe that it's so relevant that this is the enemy's strategy. He is trying to get you and me, he is trying to get our kids and the next generation to feed on doubt regarding the character and nature of God. Let's hold the line. So how are we going to hold the line? Simple. Three things. 
Feed on his word, feed on his promises, and feed on his faithfulness. I'm going to invite Nathan to come on up, and we're going to land the plane on these three things. They're simple, and yet they're profound. Listen, I just want, I want us to have this picture so clearly that I think so many times we, we allow, we give ourselves permission to live in doubt. And here's what I want to say. At Heart Church, you do not have to believe like us to belong here. So I just want to say that out of the gate. This is not one of those churches where we're just like doctrine heavy and you got to believe like us and behave like us, otherwise there's the door. Listen, you can be here amongst us and be family and be treated as one and you don't have to believe like us. You don't have to believe like me. But I wouldn't be your pastor if I wasn't telling you the enemy is going after your resolve. The last thing he wants you to be is confident. The last thing he wants you to be is faith-filled. The last thing he wants you to be is somebody who drives a stake in the ground and says, no, I am not going to feed on that garbage. I'm not going to let the enemy slander my father because I know who he is. He's my dad. I met with him this morning. He's got good things for me and he's got good things for you. And so my question is, where are the places where you have given yourself, given the enemy, some latitude to just live in doubt? I'm going on a journey. I'm just, you know, God still loves me. Yes, he does. More than you ever know. And all the while, the enemy he has been having a heyday feeding you slander against your father. And all the while, he's like, I got good things for you. You can trust me. You can have faith even when you don't see. I'm for you. I'm with you. And so we feed on his word. Listen, even if you don't understand it, let's, let's feed on the book of Mark in the next few weeks. Take a chapter and just read through it and just say, God, I thank you. Thank you that these are your words to me. They're life to me. I trust you, Lord. I'm going to anchor myself in your word. We feed on his promises. Oh, come on. Let's every day, let's thank the Lord for the things that he's promised you. God, I thank you that you're with me, that you'll never leave me. I thank you that you're my provider, that I can trust you. God, I thank you that you're my protector. I don't have to defend myself. God, I thank you that you got good plans. These are your promises towards me. God, I thank you that you've created me new, that I'm in you, Christ Jesus, that I am your, that I'm your son and daughter. These are the promises that we feed on. And lastly, I we feed on his faithfulness. God, I'm not going to forget the goodness of God. And I'm not going to forget the finished work of Jesus. This is where I land my plane as a son and daughter. So I just believe as we close this morning, there's some of us that we thought it was just innocent doubt. Oh, I've, got some, I've got some doubts. But what you're realizing by the Holy Spirit right now is the enemy, the God of this world. He's been feeding you slander. 
And so today, can we drive a stake in the ground together about who our God is, about who our Father is? He's good. And this is the platform and foundation for how we live for our confidence, for our boldness, for the decisions that we make, for how we lead our kids. Come on, let's lead our kids in having an anchor. I don't want to raise up kids that, that, that are just wishy-washy and they're blown from, with the wind of life. I want them to, to, to stand up and say, no, I have an anchor in Christ Jesus. There's so many things in life that we don't know, but there's some things that we do know. I know about his word. I know about his promises. I know about his faithfulness. And so I have an anchor in this life. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? God, I thank you, Jesus, for this journey that we have before us to dig into this book of Mark. And Lord, I thank you that you started out this chapter by declaring to your son who he is so he wouldn't forget. And we recognize the tactics of the enemy to slander who you are. We say no today to those lies. And God, we double down on the nature and character of our God. God, may, may it buoy us. May it silence the voice of the enemy and the accuser and give us the greater faith than we ever have to step out in faith and to live for you. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on.